Hey, everybody. Welcome to our quarantine edition of the McGovern Report. Hi, Rachel Wong. I'm here with my co-host, Oz Davis, and we're going to be talking about some great movies to watch during quarantine. We have picked the best movies based on rewatchability, and we're hoping that if you have some time to kill or you're trying to kill some time, that we will be of service to you by serving up some of the best cinema out there. Second World War, many eyes in imprisoned Europe turned hopefully or desperately toward the freedom of the Americas. Lisbon became the great embarkation point, but not everybody could get to Lisbon directly, and so a tortuous roundabout refugee trail sprang up. Paris to Marseille. Across the Mediterranean to Oran. by train or auto or foot across the rim of Africa to Casablanca in French Morocco. Here, the fortunate ones through money or influence or luck might obtain exit visas and scurry to Lisbon and from Lisbon to the New World. But the others wait in Casablanca and wait and wait. That is, of course, the introduction to the 1942 classic, Casablanca. And I'm sure that right about now, we can all relate to the wait part. What about you, Rachel? Can you can you relate? I'm waiting a lot these days. Okay, great. Waiting for Godot, in fact, at this point. What can possibly be said about this film that hasn't already been said? Let me give it a shot. I've got a podcast. I've got a microphone. I'll give it a shot. I used to teach this film as part of a history of film class. Actually, a couple history of film classes. And I always touted this film as the ultimate Hollywood movie. Uh, I believe that really the only film that even comes close to this in terms of Hollywoodiness, if I can say that, is Titanic by James Cameron. And I'm sure most folks right now are having aneurysms on that statement. But it is tough to argue with Casablanca being the ultimate Hollywood film. The movie is often held up as the exemplar or an exemplar of script writing. Uh, Of course, the script won the Oscar. It was written by the Epstein brothers and Howard Koch, who... I got to get this plug in here. Howard Koch wrote one of the most innovative scripts in all of entertainment in the 20th century. And that was the radio script for Orson Welles' 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast. Uh, He wrote that. And uh, let me tell you, at that time, the stuff that he, he, I mean, he's doing meta in that script in 1938. What? So this is what, 70 years ahead of its time, approximately? Um, Just a fantastic script there. So kudos to the late, great Howard Koch. And in fact, Howard Koch's career ended pretty soon after Casablanca, because guess what? He was blacklisted as a commie in that hysteria of the early 50s. Uh, the script for this, of course, is, you know, just top notch, six stars out of five, whatnot, not just because of its economy of words and, and moments, but also because how the characters are written, right? It's not just that every line has meaning, it's that every line literally is either imparting this information, personal information, or 
it's further informing the given character. We talked on a previous podcast about how the characters in The Princess Bride are deceptively deep. This is that sort of phenomenon times 10. The result is just this incredible cast of supporting characters, one of the top two or three, you know, supporting casts of all time behind Bogart and Berkman, who are both at the top of their game as Rick and Elsa, the the twice star-crossed lovers uh, of the film. I mean, in this movie, you've got Sam the pianist, you've got the resistance hero, Victor Laszlo, and I got a great factoid for you about, about this character, Rachel. You know, you've got Carl, the I'm not sure who Carl is. He's the floor manager, the maitre d kind of guy. He's the pit boss kind of guy. I don't know. Uh, you've got Peter Lorre's Ugarte. And of course, of course, you've got Claude Rains as Captain Louis Renault, sort of the uh, constable of the area, let's say. Now, I'm just going to say this again. Let's let's I'm appealing to your Academy Awards geekdom here, Rachel. Now, I've never seen the more the merrier. Okay, so I can't speak about Charles Coburn in that movie, but how Claude Rains doesn't win Best Supporting Actor at the 16th, 16th Academy Awards for bringing to life one of the ultimate Hollywood movie supporting characters is beyond me. I, uh, no clue, no clue. The other important thing that I like to point out about this movie is, look, Casablanca is a formula movie. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the deal is this. At that time in Hollywood, this was the formula. You take some well-known actors, you pick an exotic location, you probably, 99% of the time, you put that in the title, you write up a love story, and bam, there you go. You got a movie, right? Uh, The quote that I have from Julius Epstein, one of the writers of this film, is that in a very good sort of making of Casablanca, retrospective documentary on Casablanca, the quote is, when we were making Casablanca, it was just another movie, one of the 50. And by 50, he means the 50 movies that the that the studio was cranking out per year. Just cranking these movies out, these formula movies, right? So, you know, I've got a list of some of the films, just some of the films that were made around this time. Okay, you've got Tortilla Flat with Spencer Tracy and Heidi Lamar. Iceland with Sonia Heaney, you know, the Olympic figure skater. You've got Adventure in Iraq. Imagine making that film nowadays, right? You've got Abbott and Costello in Rio Rita. Etc., etc., etc. It's just that Casablanca is the one that worked. And I'll say this too one more thing. I promise this is it. The location is one more bit of the specialness of this movie. What a confluence of space and time for a scriptwriter, for a historian, for any sort of storyteller, right? You've got the exotic location. You've got people of all different sorts. Okay, in this movie, I've got Americans, Germans, Brits, possibly Hungarians masquerading as Czechoslovakians, Bulgarians, Italians, Frenchmen, Turkish folks, and Arabs. I don't know if I've missed anybody. I'm sorry. Sorry if I missed anybody. I saw some Chinese people in there. Okay, there you go. You can you can even, if you're using this time and space, you even get, guess what? Nazi bad guys. Always Hollywood's favorite bad guy, right? I mean, what a just perfect storm. And I think it's always been one of my opinions. I believe I've said this on the MacGuffin report, the older episodes. I've always believed that one of the best ways to avoid dating a movie or even a book or something like that, is set it firmly in a space and time. 
right? That way, this is 1942. It always looks like 1942 because it's about 1942. And they're not making, and the references that they're making, you know they're making them. Like, they're of that time and that's it. It's a zeitgeist thing. And so, this, Casablanca is just exhibit A in the zeitgeist movie thing, in the timelessness movie thing, and in the Hollywood movie thing. What do you got, Rachel? Golly, I don't know where to begin. I'm just glad, I'm glad I picked this one. We had a slate of movies that we were looking through that um, both Oz and I had recommended, and we were picking the last two, and, you know, Oz was like, hey, what do you think? And I was like, oh, yay! I like Up, but let's do Casablanca. <laughs> and boy, am I glad that I did. I don't even, I don't know where to begin. It's a, it's a good, solid movie. I honestly am biased. You know, I have a bias when it comes to old movies, when it comes to black and white movies. I'm a lot like Walter in that sense. I expected to sit through it waiting for it to end, like a lot of old movies that I've been told to watch. But this one, it it moves quick. It's not a long movie, first of all, but it moves quick. Oz, like you were saying, there's a lot of economy of words here. They use words wisely. The lines are all necessary. There's not a lot of extra there isn't any extra stuff that I can think of. Not only that, what's interesting is, or what's great is that almost every single character gets at least one great line, if not more than one. Uh, like Ugarte gets to say, You know, Rick, I have many a friend in Casablanca, but somehow, just because you despise me, you are the only one I trust. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that, like, like uh, um, Sam. Sam gets a line where it's the, the flashback in Paris, and he grabs a drink and he says, <laughs> this sort of takes the sting out of being occupied. Everybody gets a great line. I'd like to modify that line to say, this will take the sting out of being quarantined. There you go. It's a movie for our times, right? It's a movie for all times. Yeah. Because it's timeless. Yeah, it's timeless. And highly rewatchable. Absolutely. Highly rewatchable. Um, what was fun also was watching the film and then realizing, wow, this probably inspired a lot of the films that I love today. Just going through Rick's uh, lounge the panning camera reminded me a lot of a lot of Indiana Jones and James Bond movies, the Nazis. How can you? Yeah, it's just it just rang Indiana Jones exotic locations. So this is almost like a great callback to like our prior episode. But that in itself was fascinating. A couple fun facts. This is the most popularly quoted film of all time. That was something fun for me to watch going through this and hearing all these lines that I'd heard on The Simpsons or other films or other TV shows and being like, this is where Hill of Beans is from? What's your favorite line? All things considered funny, romantic, tight. Which is your favorite line? I think it's the line about the Hill of Beans. Hills, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a Hill of Beans in this crazy world. Yep. I I think I it's not really a line, but I think you're winning, sir, is probably my favorite line because the set. Of, That's where Charlie Sheen got it from. Oh sure, yeah, it's really it's really impacted our culture like that. Uh, the setup is fantastic. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. I don't know <laughs> if that counts as a quote, but that's the best exchange. That's my favorite exchange in the movie. I will you say have that. to have the setup. 
No, that was a good one. I genuinely chuckled like out loud when I was watching that. I was like, oh, I mean, he it was it was very uh did you use the did you use the term meta before? <laughs> um Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Was it meta? Not like not like War of the Worlds. Not like War of the Worlds. I mean, not like War of the Worlds. I mean, that Worlds. was the kick of War of the Worlds, right? Is that they actually broke that fourth wall, right? And that was mm-hmm. like unheard of, especially on the radio. Right, again, that's just such a revolutionary script. But no rabbit holes. Oh, God, I have so many fun facts about that, thanks to my boyfriend who found this amazing, I think it was either a YouTube video or a podcast, and it was just things about how War of the Worlds affected people that were listening to it at the time. But we'll get into that some other time, I'm sure. My my other fun fact is that the age difference between Bogart and Bergman is 16 years. So she was 27 while shooting, and he was 43. Oh, yeah, but we did the formula on this show before. That, that we did. That we did. We did. I'm just saying I, I, it was it was it was bumping for me while I was watching. I was like, it, I, it just kept the question just kept coming up in my head. So I, I, eventually I was like, I'm just going to Google this so I can just watch the movie in peace. <laughs> that was the one thing I needed to put to bed. That's all. That's my other fun fact. But I mean, I have the other the other one being that there are actually two directors um, in this movie, that the opening scene was actually directed yes, by that's right. a different that's director. Right. You can see the effect that this had on movies, right? Because, again, I think that against the formula of the time, you have this great script, but again, the location, I think, was really selling it. And we're going to talk location in our next movie as well. But the location is selling the script. And we're also going to talk about the Marx Brothers' take on Casablanca, a night in Casablanca in a little bit. But you look at a night in Casablanca, and the sets look the same as Casablanca, of course. And then you can just go through time. You get By the time you get to Raiders of the Lost Ark, the echoes are still there from Casablanca. And you can bet that this is one of the movies that Spielberg was thinking about when he made Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because I'm sure that when he was a kid, he was seeing this movie. Because I think even kids could appreciate this movie. At least, if, if you have the tolerance for a movie. Oh, yeah, Yeah, because there's heroes, and there's, like, good songs. The The fight between the anthems in this movie is fantastic. That's a great scene. Oh, that was such a good scene. And, uh, you know, again, like, Nazi bad guys. I mean... <laughs> How can you not love it? Let's go on to that other movie. Let's talk Roman Holiday. I am intrigued, Rachel. What you got for us? Well, growing up, a lot of my friends were Audrey Hepburn fans, so naturally I watched a lot of Audrey Hepburn movies going over to their house, and I was like, that's one that I haven't seen in a while, and we're we're talking old-timey movies. Let me throw that one in there. So Roman Holiday, if you haven't seen it, is a 1953 rom-com directed by William Wyler, starring Gregory Peck, Audrey Hepburn, and Eddie Albert. A bored and sheltered princess escapes her guardians and falls in love with an American newsman in Rome. Um, a lot of this it was really interesting how it was filmed. A lot of it felt like kind of a stage play at some parts. It's not like today where we're shooting from a lot of different angles, especially if you look at um, Joe's apartment. They shoot it from one angle and one angle only, so it feels like a stage play. And you can really see where uh, – I, I couldn't see Gregory Peck thinking, like, I need to open up to camera, but there's definitely different technique being used then like nowadays we, when we have our multicam all of our actors are taught you need to open up to camera but there's a lot of that scene where you see 
the back of Gregory Peck's head, which is, you know, just a sign of the times. That was just how things were done then. Um, but that that kind of felt fun, though, that it did feel like a stage play at times. Um, this film is very reminiscent of uh, another film that we reviewed on an earlier podcast. I'm going to make you fans go back and listen to it and you'll you'll find it. Um but this was this is a really fun movie because of the all the charming star power that you see in it. Um, Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn, how can you not love them? They've got great, I, in my opinion, they've got great chemistry in this film. Um, the age difference for this movie is 13 years. She was 24 and he was 37. Um, Oz, you're <laughs> laughing. I know you are. Um, so another fun fact here is that uh, Gregory Peck actually had 18 big hits under his belt at this point. And this was Audrey's breakout film. They w- were not sure about casting her, but then they watched the screen test and you were like, you know what? She's it. She wasn't available at the time because she was doing a performance on Broadway at the time. But they were like, you know what? We'll just wait. So they waited for her to finish her Broadway run. And by, you know, by I think it was in May of that year, they gave her 23 days to rest. And then they flew to Rome and they shot it. And after Roman Holiday was released, that kind of started a trend of a lot of films being shot in Rome, being shot in Italy, these getaway destination movies so there there's some fun facts oz what do you have to one say? of oz's fundamental rules of movie reviews is this there are two locations which will significantly enhance the quality of your film those two locations are hawaii and italy uh, in preparation for this podcast i just spontaneously came up here's another good here's another good bingeable series for you here here's the italy Here's the filmed in Italy series. Ready? Uh, Stealing Beauty and its inferior copy, Call Me By Your Name. Il Postino, Talented Mr. Ripley, Room of the View, and whatever Federico Fellini films you want to watch. Okay, so there you go. There's a bonus little Italian, well, filmed in Italian movie uh, festival for you. Um, I guess Roman Holiday. Let me ask you this first, Rachel. Okay. I thought millennials weren't supposed to be this sentimental. <laughs> what is it about this film? Wait, why? <laughs> millennials, we have accepted as a generation that we come in all shapes, sizes, and emotions. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stir. <laughs> Maybe maybe this is nostalgia for me. Um, another few favorites uh, among my friends are Funny Face and Breakfast at Tiffany's. I did not want to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's okay, because yeah. of certain reasons. <laughs> Let's get into that. I um, can get into that as well. We we can get into that. Um, but just to comment on your films filmed in Italy, gosh, I miss traveling. Yeah, how about it? This is another great way to stay in. You know, watch films that are filmed elsewhere. What's what what better way to escape? You don't have to deal with paying for your accommodation. You don't have to deal with getting lost. You don't have to deal with getting sick while you're yeah. flying. <laughs> okay. Tell me you've been to Italy, Rachel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it is one of my favorite places to go. Like, I got back a couple summers ago, and I'm itching to go. Like, usually I like to mix it up and hop around to different continents, but I could always go back to Italy. Oh, my gosh. I even have, like, my new secret spot now that i'm gonna buy my you know my ritzy home not next to 
where if I'm sure Elton John has a home there too, but maybe I'll find like a spot like a little bit further from the beach. It's a little bit more affordable, but I've I've got my I've got my secret spot. Nice, <laughs> nice. Americans do not go there though. Like it, you got to learn some Italian to get around. That was that was it was a fun challenge. Well, to say that. okay, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on Italy. However, so you can bear me out on the fact that set something in Italy, you're set. You're set. Oh, you're yeah. halfway there. You're halfway there. Hawaii is the other one, but they are filming fewer and fewer films in Hawaii these days for environmental reasons. Yeah, I guess a good, very good reason to watch this film, Roman Holiday. Again, not really one of my favorites, uh, but it's a great introduction to Audrey Hepburn. It's the world's introduction to Audrey Hepburn, yeah. really. This is, yeah, as Rachel points out, this is her star turn, right? If you look at her IMDb before this, it's hilarious. She's got a bunch of parts with, like, Cigarette Girl. You know, stuff like that. So this is her star turn. This is her breakout role. After this, if you'd like a run of movies to watch or consider, we'll put some asterisk here on a couple of these. Uh, she's in Sabrina in 1954. War and Peace, 1956. Now, that's like three hours long. That's that's a good space filler. The Unforgiven, the original Unforgiven of 1960. Very underrated Western movie, and I am not at all big on Western movies. But that one's actually worth a watch, especially if you're into Western movies. I might Bird check Lancaster that out. is the co-star on that. Yeah, it's different. It's different. It's not your usual cowboys and Indians. Although, there are Native Americans, and there are sort of cowboys. Breakfast at Tiffany's is 61. My Fair Lady is 1964. And uh, my personal favorite, actually, uh, which is one of those underseen movies, unless you've seen a lot of Turner classic movies, where it always seems to be on, uh, How to Steal a Million from 1966 with Peter O'Toole. Have you seen this one? I have not that seen that good. one. That one's really good, especially if you're an Audrey Hepburn fan. Yeah, check that one out. Really funny. Uh, you know, it's one of these caper flicks because caper flicks got really big. This is the time of the original Ocean's Eleven uh, th- movies like that. Uh, so a lot of caper flicks are out, and it's sort of a caper flick, but it's also comedy because Peter O'Toole's in it. That's a really good film. You should check that one out. Breakfast at Tiffany's. We've got the issue here of Mickey Rooney playing a Chinese cook? Something like that. Lives in the same building as Audrey's character. And uh, really disappointing. Really disappointing. Because they didn't need to do it like this. Where, you know, and there's, Again, there's just no reason to do this. There's just no reason to do it in this film. Because the character, the character is not really a cartoon kind of the lines are kind of good you know the the stuff that he's doing is not he doesn't have to be chinese to do it you know he's just a nosy neighbor this could this character could be hungarian this character could be greek and i just don't understand why they had to if they're gonna make it chinese why they had to have i guess they needed another name for the thing but i guess george papard wasn't enough to carry the second billing i don't know it's kind of a bummer because she's great. I don't know. Maybe you should just blip past those parts. It's tough if you're an Audrey Hepburn fan or even, you know, this kind of movie fan, Hollywood movie fan, to have to skip this film because of this bullshit supporting character. Someone should just go in and do a re-edit yeah, and you know, reshoot. And you could a lot of the time because a lot of the time it's that shot where he's calling down from the stairs. From the balcony. Yeah. 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 You know, there's a lot of stuff that you could reshoot. Actually, that's a great idea, Rachel. That is a great idea. We should take that one to the bank. You get big, you form your own studio, you make independent films, and there you go. 
There you go. This is this is inclusive mediums first major motion picture production. Yeah, exactly. This is the new hashtag starring Ooh. John Cho. Ooh, nice. Have you seen that? Have you seen no, that social media no, trend? Starring John Cho? So this was yes, this was the this was before Crazy Rich Asians, I believe, and it was kind of part of the hype as to why Crazy Rich Asians did so well at the box office, but there is a Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. It's killing me. Um, there, there was a, there was a, uh, a kid on Twitter. He was decent at Photoshop, and what he did was he took famous Hollywood movie posters and he photoshopped John Cho into all of them, saying, "Why not John Cho? Why not somebody of Asian descent? Because we don't have that in Western culture. Why not?" Um, so that got really big and got people thinking like. Yeah, why not? Why not? And it brought up questions about stereotype and brought up questions about like uh, male toxicity and things like that. So it was just a really uh, good place to have educated discussion. How about John Show as Sulu, but in the old Star Trek. <laughs> but that, but then you're just replacing another. But then you're just replacing George Takei. No, no, no. This was talking about replacing somebody <laughs> like Harrison Ford or Daniel Craig or. <laughs> I'm just jerking your chain. See, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the quarantine uh. is getting to me. It's getting to you too, because clearly you're spending too much time on Twitter, right? Shall, shall we go on to watching movies? Because that's what I'm doing. I'm pimping movies. Okay, I'm pimping yeah. quarantine movies. Yeah. Here we go. Let's talk comedy classics. Now, again, in preparation for this thing, and, and again, you can weigh on this, Rachel. When looking at classic films, I think of all the genres and subgenres, comedy probably ages the worst. Even even worse than like science fiction. Wouldn't wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, because I think comedy is very good at social critique, but when things change and become people become more open minded Bad jokes go bad quickly. Right, right. There is this very close connection between comedy and culture. Of course, you can see this at the very obvious level in wordplay. If you don't speak that target language, in fact, probably if you're not fluent in that target language, you're not going to get a wordplay. Right. And you can just go from there. You can go into the political humor, the contextual humor, any gender stuff. All of this is dependent on culture. So it is very, very difficult to make humor that can span cultures. Um, I think it's stuff like Monty Python, which still appeals around the world 50 years later after that stuff is out. In my opinion, the greatest troupe of all time uh, in comedy. You think about stuff like Mr. Bean, which plays all over the world. Charlie Chaplin, of course, which is still going strong at 100 years old. Some of his films are now 100 years old. Incredible. Still funny, right? How do mm -hmm. you do it? Well, in my opinion, the Marx Brothers are one of those groups that can do it. These are some movies that are just as funny today, even though the situations are dead. Right now, again, it's not doing that heavy grounding thing as in Casablanca or some other films that we've discussed on the MacGuffin Report. But you can accept the this is the 20s, this is the 30s kind of stuff. You know, the wire telephones, telegrams, you know, playing football without helmets, you know, stuff like this. You, you can accept that, right? So we can, we can buy that kind of stuff. But 
What I like about the Marx Brothers is that they're still hilarious without that dated humor. Even Monty Python can descend into rapey jokes. And yeah, the Marx Brothers have got a lot of those jokes where it's three guys chasing the woman and she's screaming and stuff like this. But it's done in this sort of innocent, childish way, you know, like Chaplin used to do, where it's like, you know, it's just silly. It's like Benny Hill, but not as twisted. I was just going to say Benny Hill. (laughs) Benny Hill is off his rocker. (laughs) You know, these guys are off their rocker, but they're still in control. You know, they're they're sublimating it, you know. And so one of the great things, too, about successful comedy is it does comedy on all levels. Yeah, you have the word jokes, but you have the pratfalls, right? And then you have the satire and you have the cross-dressing in a lot of English language stuff. Not this, but in a lot of English language stuff, right? Now, in this film... They do, so, and in other Marx Brothers films, they do do the class struggle. You know, the class struggle is real. You know, cops are bad guys like they were in Chaplin. But there is no place for racism. There's no race stuff in this at all. These are Jewish guys. Sometimes they're in Jewish settings in these movies, but they're not. There's no fight there. They're not, they're not making the Hitler movie. They're not making the great dictator like Charlie Chaplin did. Now, Night in Casablanca which is the focus of this review, ostensibly. It's not so much a parody as an homage. Like we just talked about, basically what they're doing is they're just taking advantage of the setting, which is great, and the notoriety of Casablanca. You know, they're using a lot of the same language. Groucho Marx is kind of an equivalent for Rick for the Bogart role in this movie, but the gags and the plot lines and the subplots are pure Marx Brothers. You know, and it's the same stuff. I mean, Harpo is doing the slapstick and he's doing the he's got the the massive pockets. You know, this guy's got bigger pockets than Doctor Who. He's he's getting accordions in there and stuff. Chico's got the wordplay. Groucho's got the one liners. And they've all got this this awesome anarchistic sensibility that just like really fits in any time period, I think. Um, Night in Casablanca is great. It's not really one of their best this is their second to last film so the energy is a bit down uh as opposed to when they were first getting going and there was a lot more anything goes and you know there was a lot less money invested in these things so the producers weren't hanging over their heads like they were in this film apparently production on this was incredible with uh you know you can't do this you can't do that etc 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 but here's their run here's their uh first I think I got 10 films here. Uh, Start with The Coconuts in 1929. This one's not so accessible. This one is clearly from the vaudeville tradition. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of singing, a lot of musical numbers, a lot of broad comedy. So this one is not the best to start with, but after a while it's worth it. Uh, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, A Night at the Opera, A Day at the Races, Room Service, At the Circus, and Night in Casablanca, which came out in 1946. So with the exception of Night in Casablanca, these are their first what? How many do I have here? One, two, three, eight films, nine films. Great run. Great run of old comedy films. Now, Rachel, I understand you haven't seen this particular film, Night in Casablanca. So I say you could start with this. You could start with Animal Crackers or just pick one. Uh, A lot of them are available free online. I think the rest of them, you have to go through Amazon and buy it, I think. Cool. I will check those out. Um, Let's see. Some older comedies that I have seen. I was a Charlie Chaplin fan in college, so I 
spent time really studying modern times and the kid. So I would start with those if you want to get a good foundational education on old comedy. Um, another one that I've seen recently, thanks to my boyfriend, is The General, a Buster, Ke- a Buster Keaton film. That one is also great to start with. And they all, they're all pretty short. They run around, you know, 60 to 80 minutes. So they, they, they're short films. They're quick to watch. Oh, yeah. They get more and more, I don't want to say political because that's not the right word, but more poignant, more speaking to the human condition. Um, in my opinion, The Great Dictator, which is really the last one, not even with the Tramp character, but with a Tramp-esque character, is in parts of it are almost silent and parts of it are speaking parts of it are political satire uh to me that's one of the four or five greatest films of all time never mind comedies but not really a riotous laugh a minute like his older films or like the marx brothers so probably slightly less accessible but really one of the must-see films is great dictator i don't know how rewatchable it is but it's definitely one of the must-sees so Should we wrap it there, Rachel? Yeah, I think that's a wrap. Okay, that's a wrap then. This has been the MacGuffin Report Quarantine Viewing Edition. And hey, you're at home, you're online. Check us out. Give us a shout at Twitter at The MacGuffin Pod. On Facebook, our page is The MacGuffin Report. I'm Oz Davis. And for my co-host, Rachel Wong, we're saying stay safe, stay inside, and watch some good old movies. Thank you.